There's a radio show with a bloke that you know. And he shakes it just like a maraca. He tells stories so grand of this vast, timeless land. And they call it Sunday with Macca. More importantly, Macca, I was a rower. And so they, the Department of Ag let me stay in Sydney and row. You can tell I'm a pretty big bloke and I used to row at 70 kilos. I'm now 110. For 13 years I boiled myself down and tried to row for Australia. I didn't make it, but that's, that's the point. For me, the value of rowing is there's no professionalism in it. You do it because you want to do it, and you, you'll give up anything if you're good. It's like the bloke rang me last week. His mate come down from the Territory, and he saw all these blokes doing sheep trials and stuff, and he yes. said, you blokes always seem so happy. Why is that? And he said, it's because we're not doing it for money. We're doing it for the love of the game, and, yes. and rowing's, I guess, the same. They're never going to become millionaires rowing. That's not the point. It's a great sport, and nobody's more important than the person pulling the oar in front of you and behind you. There's no one better than anybody else, including the coxswain. Oh, look, the only thing I was going to tell you, um, you should tell your listeners to use the ABC app. And if they're on the East Coast, if they turn to Perth, you know, there's a three-hour time zone change. So if they want to listen to your show, they can hear it from the beginning. You know, wake up at 8.30 and hear it from the beginning, <laughs> which is what I tend to do. Or, you know, Adelaide's, Adelaide's half an hour behind. You know, you can get a little bit more sleep and not miss out on <laughs> Australia all over. And how's the medical profession going, Ernie? Uh, good, apart from the way the hospitals are run, but I might get into trouble if I say too much about that. But, jeez, so could be but... a bit better. Could be a bit better. And I'll take... 10 times as many people to run the place and somehow things don't work as well. There's a radio show that Australians all know. If you're rich or you ain't got a cracker. They tell stories so grand of this vast timeless land and they call it Sunday with Macca. They all call it Sunday with Macca. Yeah, they all call it Sunday with Macca. Get on with it, Macca. Ernie reckons they're not working and we've invited 750,000 people here to Australia. Good morning and welcome. Hope you enjoyed Australia Day. This is a letter about that. Uh, it's from a bloke called Cookie. That's what he wants to be known as. He says, I've found Australia Day difficult over the past decade. You couldn't have come across someone who loved this country more. On my few excursions out of it, I couldn't wait to come back home. But now the vociferous agenda-driven power seekers have made me feel I have no home. Two of my daughters used to sing duets beautifully, their soprano and alto voices blending exceedingly well. Plus, they both played instruments at advanced levels and had accurate pitch, one what we'd call perfect, perfect pitch. They sang this beautiful Israeli song in an Stedford in the 90s and won it with the audience in palpable silence during the performance. In its original version, it is pertinent now with the Gaza-Israeli war. But some years ago, in my distress, I wrote some new words for me to think about my state. My girls don't like it, of course, not that they get time to sing these days. It's just a personal thing, so I won't be getting into strife over copyright. I'm sending it to you to let you know how Australia Day now affects some of us. We love this country, it's our very being, but the constant bleating about us being invaders has taken away our feeling of truly belonging here or perhaps for some, of not even wanting to belong to such a divided society. It was originally for three voices, but we made it a duet. The new Australian words were to suit the duet and the girls' voices. The piano accompaniment complements the song beautifully. I doubt it would work with guitar or trombone. It's a formal kind of song, so totally alien from pop or country or rock, but I know you'll see the beauty in it. 
and Cookie sent me the music. I wish my friend Larry was here. Larry Mohabrak was a great piano player who would take me through it. <laughs> but anyway, I won't sing it, but I'll read you the Australian words. Uh, it's Israeli title is Bash Ana Habat, I think is how you pronounce it. And the new title, This Worn Dirt. This worn dirt, part of me, not by birth, all at sea. This worn dirt, part of me, her wondrous birds and plants, her dry bed creeks, star-chocked skies, desert sands. Childish dream, now obscene, to think that we belong to this great land, ancient land girt by sea. But it's here I can breathe, feel the awe of her trees, of the kite dwarfing all of our daily cares, Cookies laugh across the gully at the end of the day, bidding all to obey Mother Earth. This worn dirt, part of me, to leave her shores just makes me know that I cannot be somewhere else. All the things that I see just prove to me that where I want to be is at home with my lot. Kangaroo, lawyer vine, waratah, bunyapine, cockatoo, dugong shark, wombats, owls that bark... But a guest, I'm told, should not be so bold to have roots in this worn Aussie dirt. This worn dirt, part of me, not by birth, all at sea. I'd like to get Larry to play that, but uh, unfortunately Larry's not here. Maybe my mate Bill is a wonderful piano player too. Cookie says, thanks for remaining more steadfast than me and for doing so much to prevent others falling into despair over country. I'm staying anonymous as I don't want to offend some of my woke family and friends. Very best wishes and sincere thanks for your amazing dedication and empathy, says Cookie. Thank you, Cookie. 1300 700 is our number, A little from our numismatist, Philip Desbra. He says, Ian, last week about Matthew Flinders, mention was made about his reburial that will happen on the 13th of July at Lincolnshire. His portrait appeared on our 10-shilling note from 1954. You might have one. And until decimal currency came in on 1966, over 500 million notes were printed during this period. He says about David G. An auction held late last year contained a number of forged coins, the handiwork of Australia's most audacious coin forger, David G. His story appears in a book titled Heads I Win, which was published in 1986 and was written by Geoffrey Watson, Dan Thomas and Jack Bennett. An updated article appeared in the December-January 24 edition of the Australian Coin Review. It's a fascinating story in which public libraries, coin experts and also the controller of the Mint were involved during the 70s. The book itself is quite hard to come by now and is collectible in itself. And finally, from Philip Desborough on the Commonwealth Bank, over the holiday break, I managed to read the following book, The Commonwealth Bank of Australia, Origins and Early History by Robin Gollan. It's worth a read. He says, I'll try and chase that up. Speaking of the Commonwealth Bank, I went to the ready teller the other day to get some money out, of course, and the sign came up, Commonwealth Bank, supporter of Cricket Australia. And I thought, well, if you want two more woke organisations, the Commonwealth Bank and Cricket Australia, hand in hand, I just love it. On to other things. On Friday, Australia Day, I was invited onto the James Craig. What a wonderful history. And on board, I met Liam. Come and meet him.
James Craig, I'm on board to James Craig, with the first mate, is that right Liam? Second mate. Second mate. Yeah. Don't want to get promoted just yet, Maka. What's the difference? Much lower. <laughs> more work. It means I get to do more fun stuff. <laughs> Don't have as much responsibility. What's your story, Liam? Where are you from? I'm originally Irish, Yeah. so um, I come from Galway on the west coast of Ireland. I've been in Australia for about 43 years. I love the country, I love sailing, and sailing on the James Craig is a dream come true. It's amazing, isn't it? Amazing boat yep. when you wander around here. It's just, I think it was built in Sunderland, it says, yeah. Yeah, built in Sunderland in England, and uh, did a few circumnavigations of the world, and ended up in Tasmania, and then back in Sydney, where the Sydney Heritage Fleet did their restoration on it, and here we are on a lovely day sailing around Sydney Harbour. Were you, were you a sailor? Yeah, I do a lot of recreational sailing. I've never commercially sailed, so this is the first time I've done commercial in the sense of we're all qualified. Previous to that, it was just sailing around the place and racing around the tin cans in the harbour and so on. You would have noticed today we were in the tall ships race and we were sailing into the wind. Now, if you can really get your head around a tall ship sailing into the wind, that's not really how they did it in the old days. <laughs> Why did you come to Australia, Liam? Oh, I did the normal thing of coming out as a, uh, a backpacker, came to Sydney and saw Sydney Harbour, got a, came across on a ferry and said, in the middle of July, this is the best winter I've ever had, and decided it was the place for me. Although I've camped out in a few other places in Australia as well, so a lovely place. And you yeah. do bushwalking? Yes, yes, I've walked quite a lot extensively around Australia and overseas, but yeah, so they're my two, my two passions are sailing and bushwalking. Well, Liam, it's great to talk to you, mate. You too, Macker, and I love listening to you on Sundays. Smooth sailing, mate. <laughs> yeah, g'day, Macker. This is Jared. How are you? Good, thanks, Jared. I was just calling up. Uh, I'm, I'm one of the city slickers that has moved to the, the Clarence Valley. I've, I've been here about uh, two years. Uh-huh. And I, I was prompted by uh, Robert, the previous caller, or the previous... Uh, guy from Almara that you had on oh yeah uh, prompted me to call up my I'm almost 40 my old man used to listen to you every morning when I was a kid <laughs> um before I go surfing uh, I'd hear him uh tuning in so I, I thought I'd ring up and introduce myself so g'day <laughs> good, on you. good on you Jared where are you where do you live I'm in Grafton I'm uh in Grafton so my, my partner and I decided to um, leave the city when she fell pregnant about two years ago and and we came up to uh, the Clarence Valley. So we're, we're right on the Clarence River. Um, but I, I was in the city. I'm a registered nurse. So I was in the city um, through all the, the lockdowns and was working at Prince of Wales Hospital in the flu clinics and the COVID wards. I was working in the quarantine hotels and all of that. So when my partner fell pregnant, we decided we, we wanted some fresh air and, and get away from the crowds and the, the craziness. Mm. So we, we moved up here to the Clarence Valley. And how's it been? Look, um, the biggest challenge I've found is, is um, slowing down, slowing down <laughs> and, and getting out of that, that city mindset that you've got to you know, work hard, play hard, go out to every show, go out to every event and, and, and work on, on 10 things at once and, and knock it back a few gears and, and just slow down to the country pace. But look, in terms of convenience, um, you know, there's, 
there's none better than than the country. So big wide streets, easy access to shops and stuff like that. The country hospitality, the people are lovely. It's been a good it's been a good move. And Grafton, I love Grafton. I I've always liked Grafton, even from a young bloke when I went there. I just like it. Now the Clarence River's great. There's lots to explore. You go up canoeing up the up the Clarence right. It's a mighty river, and then you go down to the coast and you've got surf beaches all over the place. It's a pretty good place to be. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like it's a snapshot to a a, a time of yesteryear. You know, you've got the cladding houses, and it's all. Um, there's not been much in the way of innovation here. We've got the new bridge um, over the Clarence, but we've still got the the old one too. And I, I love that old bridge. I love driving over it. The crook, I yeah, I do too. Which is the crooked bridge? It's called. That's right. <laughs> and you can yep. still see the dings on it when when it was the main highway and trucks would get across there, and there'd be a car coming the other way, and the and the truck would probably hit it, be trying to avoid the car and. The Crooked Bridge, it's just mighty. I love it. Yeah, it gets a bit hairy when there's a bus coming along and I drive a patrol. So, um, you know, you just got to, when they're coming around that bend, you, you don't want to be right in that spot, you know. You've Exa- got to give them some room. Exactly. So how's the how's the uh, nursing business up there? I suppose there's plenty of jobs for nurses, mate, around the place. Oh, there is, there is. So I, I still work casually at the hospital and, and I, I was working at a few different places uh, in corrections and in aged care. Um, and I, I've moved on to a, a different role now, but I, I still make myself available to the to the hospital every now and again just, just to help them out because... You know, there is a shortage of nurses out there and, and especially in the regions. I actually, I did my uh, new grad uh, nursing year about 10 years ago in, in Gilgandra and Galagambone. Um, so, you know, they, these sorts of places, um, it's not entirely brand new to me. I, I know the lifestyle and that's why we chose to, to leave Sydney to come up here. And I'd suspect that those quite a few people leave the big smoke and so that you know there's you said there's a shortage in regional areas but i'd say there's a shortage in the big cities too like sydney and melbourne and brisbane for for well there's a shortage for everybody i suppose but a lot of people move out of the city don't they and uh hard to replace people like you jared i think across the board i think that obviously the pandemic put a lot of duress on an already stressed system and and you know um it's it's it was hard it was hard the pandemic it, it still remains hard um so i think everyone's a bit a bit tired and a bit fatigued and we're just wanting a bit of reprieve out there in all facets of our life you know the interest rates and inflation and and all the rest of it on the background of the pandemic the last 5 years has been really tough I'll see you in Grafton sometime, Jared. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, right. I'll have a cup of coffee or something. It'd be, be very nice. Right. Righto, mate. Good talking to you. Thanks. Nice to meet you. Thanks, Jared. Uh, Jonathan Dixon here, Macca. Oh, good day, Jonathan. How are you? Yeah, good. Look, I just thought um, seeing the tennis is nearly over. Mm. Um, every year I have Novak um, um, rent opposite me. And I, I was just fascinated because I've been watching the Netflix series on all these tennis players, which is a fantastic series. Yeah. And I was just thinking about the pressure that these guys must be under. It's it, it's just um, he has about five blokes with him. It's all like military precision every morning, every night. Uh. And, um, I was just thinking, 
I don't say anything to him. And but last night I was out and he was leaving. He said, "Look, I'm sorry I didn't um, do too well." I said, well, "Don't worry about that. I'm sleeping all right." Um, <laughs> and and, uh, and uh, I just thought, you know, here they go, you know, around the world and the pressure that these guys must be under. But very nice guy. And um, I just thought, well, I'd let you know that um, he loves coming to Melbourne. And, um, yeah, uh, as I said, the, the, the pressure that these guys are under is fantastic. Yeah, I'll say. And I, I was thinking about, I don't watch a lot of tennis, but I watch bits and pieces and I saw the results and I thought, I thought to myself that he's not, he's not the Novak of, an, of other years. He's still playing well, but, and you'll know, get a young bloke like uh, Mr. Sinner who's playing really well and it'll find him out and that's what that's what happened. But you could you can contrast Novak, I suppose, to I suppose look, I'm not sure, but people in, in times gone by, you said he's got an entourage and, and famous people always have a uh, an entourage these days, don't they? But in other times they just sort of rocked up and and played, you know? Um and uh but it's a different whole different thing. I suppose you've got to get and he seems to be that sort of very focused sort of a bloke, you know, whereas some tennis players seem to be a bit footloose and fancy free, do you know what I mean, in the way they go about their their game? Look, I totally agree. And you, you you sit there and you think, now there's five guys in that box that absolutely depend on him yeah. um to bring the bacon home. And um so that's the sort of pressure that these guys are under, apart from the travel they must do. I mean, it must be amazing. But I just thought it was interesting um, the way uh, he comes here every year and um, he's he's very, you know, quiet and goes about his business. But this this they're like ants, the other guys. They're just all getting precision cars on time. <laughs> Everything's done. <laughs> anyway, it's just a little footnote that I thought, you know, seeing the tennis is now finishing, it's sort of, it was interesting. Did you go to the tennis, Jonathan? Unfortunately, Mac, I'm still working, <laughs> but <laughs> but I love watching it. Yeah, so, uh, late nights. Yeah, there you go. Well, there you go. There you go. And he's gone. He's gone home now. With uh, he's he's, yeah. he's got on his plane. I don't know whether it's his plane or whether it's you know one of the commercials. But um, they all went off in precision with the AO cars all lined up and was sort of like. You know, well, there's another year gone by. I wonder whether we're going to see him again. And and somebody was just talking about retirement, and uh, it was John. I think he was driving on the highway, and he said, "I'm retiring soon." And that'll be another thing that he'll have to face soon. Um, from that life with five or six people around him and cars and precision and this and that and the other, and all of a sudden that'll all finish. Um, not that he won't be have cars and stuff because he's, he'd have a lot of money, but. It'll uh, it'll that'll take a uh, a big change because he's probably been playing tennis at a pretty high level since he's about fourteen or fifteen, I'd say. And I'd think it'd be a huge change. Yeah, not to be able to wake up and have your legs massaged, your breakfast <laughs> ready, and your oh, business telling you you've just made another million. Oh, we have that here. We get our legs. <laughs> we got a green room and everything like that but at the time was everybody seemed to hate Novak here in Australia because of one reason or another but I read the you know the recent thing and said the crowd and the thing was on his side which I thought was interesting you know I don't love him or hate him or whatever but um time was we didn't like Novak and maybe now we do we probably like him even better because he got beaten if you know what I mean that's the strange thing 
if you look at that Netflix series, you realise just how how combative it is. You know how they've got to look at all these angles to try and put their part, you know, the people off that they're playing. Yeah. And uh, it's like any sport; it's pretty uh, commercial. Pretty gruesome. It, it gruesome. That's the word. And yeah. Jonathan, all you right, you were at our um, OB in Melbourne there at St Kilda, weren't you, I the was, other day? Okay. Yes, just... down by the old Lunar Park. <laughs> I used to love going around there when I was a small boy in the scenic railway. Oh, it was a lovely time. We'll have to come again. All right, Macca. Cheers, mate. Good on you, mate. Bye. Well, hi, Macca. It's Bruce Hill here from uh, just south of Townsville, mm. uh, near Garoo, which is a pretty well-known place. We're on the highway there, Bruce mm. Highway. Yep. I thought you might be interested in the uh, after effects of the storm. We haven't got electricity still like many others in the area and we hope it comes on soon because we're about to start harvesting our fruit called the cha-cha-cha but uh, what was I thought quite interesting is we've got uh, a lot of African mahogany trees as windbreaks on our farm to protect the 15,000 cha-cha-cha trees cha-cha-cha is a tropical fruit which which is available or will be available we're about to start the harvest on uh, the day before the cyclone and then uh, couldn't do so because of the cyclone. And uh, we had 30-odd people all lined up ready to start picking and packing the fruit and sending it off. But uh, these African mahoganies, huge things, they're about 25 metres tall. Uh, they have a very bad reputation in Townsville because some years ago they planted them there and they all fell over and brush cars and things. But here they did a fantastic job and protected our other cha-cha-cha trees. <laughs> and uh, we didn't lose one tree. And we were right in the middle of the storm. We know the trees were bending over, but uh, didn't lose one. Isn't that mighty? Tell me, so Bruce, you grow... Well, tell people about the cha-cha-cha-cha. What, what's it called, cha-cha-cha? <laughs> Achacha, yeah, there's chacha with an A at the beginning. Yeah, it's a fruit that comes from South America originally, from um, from Bolivia, and we've been growing it for several years here. It's a little orange-coloured fruit about the size of an egg, and it has a very special flavour, which is sweet and tangy, and uh, very very popular. Well, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane is where we sell most of it, but we do quite a bit of exporting into into Southeast Asia, and uh, Marks and Spencer used to be one of our best customers until COVID and uh, Brexit came along and they ran out of money. So you but, grow uh, them, Bruce. What uh, what led you to grow the achachas? Uh, my wife and I had been living in South America for a, for a while, and uh, when we came back to Australia, we figured that it would be nice to keep some links with South America, and and a Bolivian friend kept on uh, pushing us to grow this fruit. And we didn't know anything about fruit. We were doing other things. And the last thing we wanted to do was get involved in this. Anyhow, some friends helped us and uh, we started growing the fruit. It was a bit of a stupid thing, really, to get into this sort of thing when you're in your in your 60s. But <laughs> that's what we did. And, uh, and now we're still here and uh, the fruit is becoming... Very, very popular, thank heavens, and uh, particularly for Chinese New Year, which is up on the 10th of February. We're, we're desperate to get started again. We haven't got any electricity, so we can't function our packing shed up. 
unfortunately. So, and a lot of people still haven't got power up around your way. What, you know, Guru, Townsville, Air, Home Hill, places like that, is it? Yeah, yeah. It's gradually coming on, and uh, but we've still got a couple of days, apparently. And I think in Townsville, there are 4,500 people without power. Gradually coming on, but it's, we were, uh, you know, the, it was a hell of a storm around here, and we had had a, a lot of trees, other trees not on our property were down, so I guess Ergon's got a big job ahead of it. Yeah, and, and these cha-cha-cha, ah-cha-cha fruit, how big are they? So, And you didn't lose many off the trees? Nothing, nothing. We, we cut the trees down to about three, three and a half metres uh, because we only picked them from the ground, and and the second main reason is that we we're looking for some security in a in, in a big wind like we've got in a cyclone, and we thought we'd lose some of the African mahoganies. Every 150 metres across the plantation, we've got a row of African mahoganies, and we thought we'd lose some of them, but they just bent and uh, suffered, and nothing, absolutely nothing. They were, very strong, and uh, I guess they've got deep roots. The Achachas, uh, three and a half, three meters, and the fruit grows inside the tree, so you don't even see the fruit when you're driving past it. You've got to get into the tree really to see it, so it's well protected. And uh, we didn't even lose any leaves, it was amazing. <laughs> Lovely to be in the middle of it when it was all uh, blowing so so strongly. Oh, isn't it? That's a good story, Bruce. Well, good on you, and nice to talk to you, Bruce. I'll uh, when I'm coming up the Bruce, um, I'll uh, I'll call in and have a look at your chachas. Well, you'd be very welcome. You'll love them. You'll love them. Right. We'll have them in have them in the shops hopefully in a week or so. All right, mate. <laughs> I'll look out for that. Good on you. Thanks, Bruce. Okay, Macca. Good on you. you. Bye. Bye. G'day, Macca. It's Ross from Mafra. How are you going? Uh, good, Rossy. Mafra, you're from? I'm from Mafra, but at the moment I'm on the Continental Shelf and fishing out off Bermagui. Oh, wow. How far out is the Continental Shelf? Tell people all about it, Ross. Uh, so off Bermagui, it's about 12, 13 miles. Uh, I think it's one of the closest spots on the east coast of Australia to the shelf, actually. The closest mm-hmm. part of land. And you're out, so, you're out there fishing? Yeah, out here marlin fishing for the... Uh, Bermagui Big Game Anglers Club um, annual tournament. They have this every year. Wow! And what's so, it what's it like out there this morning? Is it a bit uh, bit of a swell? I, no, it's beautiful today. It's dead flat. The sun's just rising. Um, maybe about eight knots of wind. We've got some albatross, some frigate birds behind the boat. So it's bloody beautiful, actually. <laughs> and why do they call it the Continental Shelf? Not sure why it's called the Continental Shelf, Macker. It's um, I honestly couldn't tell you that, but it's um, I know it goes all around, all the way around Australia, around around Tassie, 200 metres deep on the shelf, um, that's where the marlin like to live, and that's what we're trying to catch. I suppose that's that's why I I think um, yeah, as I said, you're out there because the fish like it, obviously. Yeah, exactly. That's where the current comes down. It's where the bait is. Uh, the, the fish are here, yeah, trying to eat the, the marlin are here, trying to eat the bait. We're here trying to catch them, let them all go. How, yeah, um, how many boats out, out there, Ross? I think there's 77 in the tournament this weekend. Wow. That's so a pretty, pretty good turnout. Oh, what how to be out there. I'm not a great sailor, I don't think, Ross. Um, I'm very good on the river, but <laughs> once, <laughs> once I get out through the heads, uh, 
yeah, you can make your own arrangements. So, um, but uh, yeah, that sounds like a lovely place to be. Yeah, I think you'd be right on a day like today. It's like a lake out here. Yeah, but you never know, Ross. You never know, do you? One minute it's like, uh, and then next minute it's, um, yeah, you've got a three-metre swell or something. Yeah, you're dead right. Like, uh, this is a three-day tournament, so Friday, Saturday, Sunday. We didn't fish the first day because the weather was, yeah, terrible. So it was a day to catch up on maintenance and hydrate for the weekend ahead. But yesterday was beautiful. Today's beautiful again. And how long have you been marling fishing, Ross, and why did you take it up? Uh, so the boat I'm on now, I started fishing with this guy nearly 20 years ago when I was a kid. Uh, the boat's called Harder At It. And um, then I did it for a job for three or four years and just back doing it for fun now. Well, it sounds like... Uh, uh, and when you say you catch and release, is that a difficult thing to do, to catch and release, or what do you do? Yeah, it's not too bad. So you uh, obviously fight the marlin. Most of them you catch 10, 15 minutes. You get them beside the boat and put a tag in them. And that tag that you put in them has a um, significant number which lines up with a piece of paper. So you let the fish go with the tag in it and then you fill the card out and hopefully someone catches him another day and they can do a bit of research on it, see how far it's travelled. Yeah, it's a very popular thing. Remember, oh, you may not remember... Um, Bob Dyer, who was who had a television show and some radio shows, he was an entertainer. But his big thing was the marlin fishing, and there's always uh, lots of in in the Sydney Sound newsreels. There was always a, usually to, as a little pad. They used to had a um, a picture of a marlin competition where, and it's great great sight, isn't it, with a great huge marlin soaring out of the sea and crashing down again and all that sort of stuff. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's been uh, around forever, and the Americans used to come. And Jack Davey used to do it too. I think he was another great radio television person. But um, and Americans used to come out here uh, on the Continental Shelf. We'll have to find out what the Continental Shelf is, why it's so named, Ross. Yeah, definitely need to need to find out why that is. Yeah. Well, this actually Bermagui is a. Uh, I think he was American. Zane Gray come over and really made this place popular. There you go. So that's. He sort of kicked it off here and there. Then the likes of Bob and Dolly Dyer come down and really kept it all going. Well, Ross, good luck out there today. and Have a nice time. It's a wonderful thing to be able to do in a wonderful country like Australia. It certainly is, Mac. You have a good day too, mate. Good on you, mate. All right, cheers. See, See ya. ya. Bye. Oh, hi, Macca. Hello. I've been listening to you for 40 years, the first time I've ever rang you, but you played the putty song earlier. Up the putty road. If yeah, you want to go, it's ladies and gentlemen, if you just got up, the song goes something like this. It's by Don Morrison. It goes, if you want to get to Tamara, if you go up the putty road, uh, <laughs> up the putty road. And, and the putty road is, for those who don't know, it's a, it's a windy long road. goes from about Windsor in New South Wales, Hawkesbury, up through up to Singleton. And it's very windy, 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 windy. Nola, where are you, Nola? I'm at Milmerran. Milmerran, right, uh, in Queensland. And and you've got a putty road story. Yeah, well, this is years ago. I must have been gone because I had a camper van and three kids and I took off to the Blue Mountain, so we decided we'd go down the putty road. Anyway, we, you know, getting late in the day, so we said we'd camp on the side of the road. We were going, and um, we the caravan got stuck in a hole and I roared it up and... <laughs> And I burnt the clutch out in the car. Anyway, I sort of got it going and I went down a track and we camped on the, at a creek that night. 
And next morning, I went and stood up on the road, and a car pulled up, and in it was two guys and a woman, and I told them the trouble. And he went down and he roared the car up and, and drove it down to the service station, not that far down the road. And they went, they went to, we camped there that night, hmm. and they went down to Penrith, and they got a new clutch plate, and they come back and they, <clears throat> they put it in the car for me. Well, that's a all's well that ends well, Nola. But it's a and, it can be a very treacherous road too, the Putty Road. Yeah, and it, and that night there was an Arnott's biscuit truck tipped over, mm. and we got a, a free feed of biscuits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but if you so, talk to truckies about the Putty Road, um, yeah. there's been and there's been some terrible, horrendous accidents on the Putty Road too. It's very <laughs> very twisty and windy, isn't it? Well. You know, in those days, you, you it was free. You didn't worry about these things. You know, you just did it. Mm, exactly. I mean, I was, I was only young, trailing, you know, pulling a camper van, three kids. Exactly. It was fun. How's things in Milmerin, Nola? Yeah, good. We had a lot of rain, Macca, and it's lovely. Mm-hmm. Very good. And how come you've taken so long to ring me, Nola? Is there any <laughs> any particular well, chance, Yeah, the chance never come up, and I you know, it's a bit. It's a bit of an effort to ring you. You've got to be game. Talk to you. Yeah. Have you ever been? To, do you ever go to Tamworth? Oh yeah, been there a couple few times. Yeah. yeah it's interesting, isn't it? I, I love the passing parade of people. I suppose wherever people gather, and they're all sorts. It's all sorts, and it's just interesting to walk down and you talk to people yeah. and this one and that one and everyone's got a little yeah, story. Yeah, well, I, I had a I had a friend and we'd busk in the street. Really? Yeah, she, she was. She entered Star Maker actually, and she didn't win, of course. But you know, we did that a couple of times. Uh, it's a great time. Uh, it's a bit. Hot. Yeah, it's the best. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, Nola. Thanks for your putty road story. Um, Good day, Mac. <laughs> nice. <Bye. to> be- <laughs> This is the All Over News. This is the All Over News, and the news still is energy, power. You may or may not have heard of Tokamak as the world searches for a clean, environmentally friendly source of power. What is Tokamak? Well, it's a device that uses powerful magnetic fields to hopefully produce controlled thermonuclear fusion. Power. Scientists are busy developing Tokamaks. There are currently more than 50 Tokamaks around the world the largest being in France, ITER, which is the International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor. The search for such fusion has been going on for a long time and has already cost billions of euros, but the world continues to seek. I spoke to my friend engineer Raymond McLaren in an effort to understand fusion power and also the battery dilemma, all that stored power which can, without warning, release. But first, Tokamak, Raymond McLaren. They're building a huge fusion reactor at Cadirache in France. This is what, to, to supply electricity? Eventually it is, and it's an interesting story. We might have time to tell this story, but the plan is that this, this huge machinery, but it's, it's cost 80 billion euros already. They think it'll make break even, which means that their reaction that they induce will actually put out more heat than the energy that they put in to get the heat. In other words, it'll produce some power. The aim eventually is that these 
tokamak type reactors will be able to produce virtually endless power from hydrogen using water. It uses deuterium, which is a heavy, heavy water hydrogen, and tritium, which is radioactive. So there are a few problems with it. But it's an interesting story. That the story of, of nuclear fusion is a, it's a fascinating story because not so much because of the interesting technologies, because of the interesting human side of things. In all of human endeavour, we hear about huge projects like the pyramids and the Great Wall of China and the unbelievable things. That the search for fusion is just about as it's beautiful, actually. Started in 1950. In 1950, they they saw the way of, of probably being able to produce uh, enough heat from these things, control heat to, to, to be able to produce even run turbine and produce electricity. So since 1950, this dream has been there. Thousands of scientists around the world has been funded by most countries, believe it or not. Even if they're at war, they still they still fund this project. In China at the moment funds it. India, Russia, USA, UK, and some European countries all funding this project and that's been going for like 60 years now 60 years search for something and they're still not there with it why am i always cynical about things like this that as soon as we find something we find coal oh coal's good and then we find problems with it nuclear we find problems with it we've got to keep trying as engineers and scientists you've got to keep trying and eventually you, you but just see you can be cynical but look what's happened in, in 1960, they, they sent, it, they sent the, the astronauts to the moon. Incredible stuff. And now they've got the James Webb Space Telescope out there. That unbelievable stuff. You couldn't even dream that up 50 years ago. It's, so it's a quest, really. So the quest for fusion is one of mankind's greatest efforts, I, I reckon. It, it seems to be apolitical to allow the, all the countries of the world contribute to it, even if they're at war, mm. which is a remarkable thing. But eventually we'll make it. The, the tokamak in England has been running recently and they, they think that they've achieved break-even on that one. So break-even, the energy in equals energy out, but they want energy in less than energy out, yeah. don't they? It's like starting your engine. You've got to, got to, got to start it. it take, these take a lot of starting, uh-huh. a lot of energy to start them. So, so far there's not enough energy coming out to justify the energy to start it. But the plan is to eventually have virtually unlimited power. Uh, engineers are born and not made. Yeah, I'm, I'm beginning to realise that, Ian, that I've got older now and I've, I've always been able to make things all my life. But I realise now that as my sort of abilities at making decisions and general life things slow down a bit, but I can still design the most intricate machines. And I'm thinking, how come that I've got the brain that's sort of surviving like this? I was born with this brain. It must have been because I remember when I was a school kid. I mean, by the time I was uh, 13 and 14, I was, I was doing a lot of uh, work with guns, shooting. I was very interested in shooting. Had plenty of guns. And I was in the school cadets in the military. But by the time I was 15, I had made my own repeating rifle. And I had, I had also made a self-loading handgun. You imagine a 15-year-old kid these days making a self-loading handgun. And guns are basically engineering. They work like engines and machines, a typical machine. So I, for that reason, when I do my design work now, I, and I think, oh, I can still design these things. So I was born an engineer. We bought a big machine, um, the big Caterpillar 988H, to lift belts around the yard. And when we got it, it didn't have the right forks on it. So we've, we've now got to modify the forks. And they're 20-ton forklifts. So that, that's a bit of an ordeal when you've got to modify somebody else's work. It's not as easy as creating it first yourself. I bumped into a bloke in Melbourne a couple of months ago. We were doing our program down there. And, you know, as usual, I asked him what he did. And he said, oh, I'm down here putting batteries in 
trucks. He says, we've got these old Kenworth trucks which have done a million Ks and we're pulling the engine out and we're putting electric motors in them with batteries. <laughs> About three weeks later, I saw that this truck caught fire on the freeway in Melbourne and burnt to the ground and made a great hole in the thing. They're having trouble with batteries, aren't they, and energy and things like that? Yeah, well, they, they are. They had quite a bit of trouble with them. But, you know, I, I think it's the way to go, really. But there are problems. And when you convert an old machine, like I was just mentioning converting a forklift, Converting old work is much more difficult than doing new work. Mm. So they, they probably had some troubles with old, old stuff. See, the batteries are an inherently dangerous thing. Like a huge cartridge. I mean, I talked about guns before. A cartridge has it's got, it's got its own uh, propellant material in it, and it can come out at any particular rate that you want to make it come out at. High-velocity bullets, low-velocity bullets, whatever you like. Batteries are like that too. So a battery can discharge its energy at a high rate, so it's very dangerous when you get short circuits. But... Generally speaking, you've got all this stored electric energy in a battery and if it catches fire or something goes wrong, it's got to be released somehow. And it's a lot of energy. It's not just a bit. It's like a fuel tank full of diesel. They say you can't put them out with water or something like that. Is that the story? Or? Well, that's what I've heard. There are reasons for that, but uh, yeah, I've heard that. Raymond McLaren, and an interesting statistic, every tonne of hydrogen produced by electrolysis consumes at least nine tonnes of fresh water. There are no easy answers. Hi, Maka. It's Roger here. How are you? Good, thanks, Roger. Good, mate. We're just uh, on a bit of a road trip on the Landsborough Highway, pulled up the intersection of the of Augustella and Morven. Augustella is uh, to the left and Morven's to the right. We've uh, just come from Charleville. Heaps of rain out here and it's beautiful and green. There you go. Roger, what do you do? I've got a plumbing business business in Brisbane, but what we're doing is dropping our 18-year-old daughter, who's just finished at St Margaret's. She's got a um, she's got a uh, a governorship job about an hour out of Longreach. Wow! As a, uh, a bit of a gap a gap year, and a big change to life, mate. Has she? Uh, yeah, is that? Gee, that's uh, a big change. <laughs> big change, isn't it? She's uh... yeah. So I think the property is around eighty-six thousand uh, acres. Uh, and the people have a long history with St Margaret's, as in taking girls out there and doing governorship. So we hope it all goes well, and we hope she has a fantastic 12 months. Yeah, great learning experience too, to go out from, from Brizzy out, uh, out to Longreach, and Absolutely. they'll go into Longreach and have fun and meet people from all over the place. That's, uh... They do, that's for sure. There's still a lot, of, a lot of young people out that way right now, and surely knows a few, so, um, you know, they go skiing and and uh, have lots of get-togethers in town. So, yeah, Longreach is a great place. Yeah, and what did you say you did, Roger? I got a plumbing business business in Brisbane. We mm. live uh, we live in Brizzy, and and that's where the St Margaret's bit come from. So, yeah, um, it's been that that business I've got has been going nearly twenty years, and it goes well. I've got a few boys running around doing stuff, and I hope they're at work tomorrow, Mac, and nice and early. <laughs> <laughs> after after the long week, uh, the Australia Day long weekend. Yeah, that's it. I hope they're not too hungover. No, they're real a good bunch of blokes, mate. So yeah, it goes it goes uh, well. Well, the building game apparently, uh, whether it's uh, commercial buildings or you know units or houses, I suppose yeah, is going yeah, we, gangbusters. Uh, I suppose yeah, for sure. It? We we do. Um, I don't. Uh, I'm a bit of an independent. I don't work for any builders. We just uh, stand on our own two feet and we look after. The area we're in, which is Ascot, Hamilton, Hendra, around that area, and uh, and people just ring us because you know, we provide the good service for the last eighteen odd years, mate. Yeah, well, that's hard to find too, mate. It's hard to find, and more and more people are 
are getting out of their jobs early. I think teachers and nurses and whatever, they all. Yeah, yeah, for so sure. And I suppose sure. it's the same in your game too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is. It's um, Some of the boys I've had work for me have been there for almost 10 years, which is uh, a huge effort. Uh, you go after them and that's the main thing. You've got to, you've really got to, um, how you'd like to be treated. That's my motto. Um, you know, I just don't want to, you know, abuse them or, you know, or carry on like a, some sort of a dictator. You've just got to uh, look after them and treat them how you'd like to be treated. Well, these days people won't work that work that way, will they? Uh, time was when we did. We we did what we were told, and, and there's nothing wrong with doing what you're asked to do. But oh, um, but there's, there's a way absolutely. to do it. There's a way to do it, I suppose. For sure, yeah. We uh, we take them out, shout them uh, lunch down the Brecky Creek Hotel every now and then, and <laughs> um, that's always a good thing, mate. It's a, you know, the institution in Brisbane. Yeah, sounds like a great thing. All right, Rog. Well, um, no worries. Mate. Maybe, great to talk to you. What's your, what's your daughter's name? What's her first name? Her name is Hope. Hope. Well, maybe after she settles in in six months' time or something, she'll give us a ring and she'll she'll be a new new lady. And, and she'll uh, she'll give you a bit of an update because uh, obviously they have a school holidays off and she uh, may or may not fly home or choose to go and see some friends, or whatever. But we'd be happy to talk to you, mate. That'd be great. Good on you, Rog. Great to talk to Thanks. you, mate. Champion. See you soon. See Thank you. you. Bye. Bye. It's Rob Lewis here, Macker in Handoff. G'day, Rob. Uh, that uh, that Marlin story interested me because it brought back some memories of being with Sound as a cameraman in the early 60s. And although I was in Melbourne, where I actually worked with Red uh, Fred Skepsy because uh, Sound Productions had a base there as well, but uh, What's happening there? One of the clients was BP, BP Petrol. Yeah. Now, Bob Dyer had a lot to do with BP Petrol. And we would have shorts of interesting things all around the place to do with BP. And one that I shot was with Bob and I on Tennessee 2. Uh, although we didn't catch any marlin, it was a lovely day out. But among all the fishermen, that uh, were marlin-known fishermen was Zane Gray. Zane Gray, the author of American cowboy movie. Uh, Westerns, comic, uh, yeah. Westerns, Westerns yeah, yeah, that's right. Zane Gray had a beautiful property called St. Vigens uh, in the Northern Territory, which was, I can't think exactly how to describe where it is, but, but from where I used to go, which was, um, at Kel Carrick's Europunga Station at the Roper Bar, uh, St. Vigens would lie south and east from there. But uh, the interest of my story was Bob and Dolly Dyer going out of Tennessee. So I didn't see a marlin, I didn't see one caught, but it was just a lovely time to be working with Cine Sound or working in the Australian film industry uh, because there was never a dull moment. Good on you, Macca. Yeah, I when I was a kid, I'd go to the movies on Saturday afternoon, and there was always a cine sound piece, and there was invariably a a marlin, a black and white marlin piece that was uh, about fishing somewhere on the continental shelf. Probably you probably shot it, Rob. Uh, well, probably it was Australia all over those days. It was just lovely to be a newsreel cameraman and go to all the lovely events, the Melbourne Cup. Caulfield Cup, oh. every every lovely exciting thing that went on, and the Sydney Sound 
crew were always, although I was on my own most of the time, were always treated like royalty and, and given access to everything everywhere. <laughs> it's, uh, it's not like that now because there are so many, well, they're called cameramen, but, you know, the camera pointers and they, they use video, video, not proper film. <laughs> and everybody's got, a, everybody's got a mobile phone camera, so everybody, everybody's a cameraman now, Rob. Well, that's that's the potential for anyone to make a quid on the side, I suppose. Yeah, in case if they're they, there at the right time. Yeah, and uh, they film everything. You usually find that when something's happened, somebody's been there with a mobile phone. You know, it's a bit scary in some ways, Rob. Yeah, yeah you'd be on your best behaviour all the time. Exactly. Good on you, Rob. <laughs> Thanks, Macca. It's a pleasure. Bye. Hooray. John's in Kiama. Morning, John. Good morning, Mac. How are you going? Yeah, good, thank you. That's the way, mate. Um, Mac, I've been listening this morning uh, to the comments for the fellow out marlin fishing. Mm. And at, uh, then listen to the young fellow from South Australia, and, and uh, he's, he's fa- uh, filming of it. Mm. We are a group of pensioners and retirees that are actually restoring a boat called the MV Cigna. Now, the Cigna was the first game boat that fished out of Sydney and it was built by a coffin maker in Lidcombe. And Bob and Dolly Dyer fished off that off the Cigna, not only in, off Sydney, on Browns and uh, Mountain, and Patton's Mountain, which are named after the owner and the deckhand of the Cigna. He also took them down to Bermagui to fish for marlin. The, the boat took them up to Cairns and fished up there with Lee Marvin. And when we got the boat, Two years ago, it was uh, just about ready to be scrapped. Mm. And as a group of six of us, we're, we're almost back to the stage now where it'll go back in the water. But a brief history of the boat it was built in 1958 to 19, uh, 1968 to 1970. It was owned by Jack Patton, the coffin maker from Lidcombe. It was then sold to Doyle's Restaurant, who used it as a harbour cruiser boat for 10 years. And it was sold to another fellow by the name of Chief Greg Guy, now deceased, lived in Tasmania, and then sold to a fellow by the name of Ross O'Brien, who used it as a game fishing boat. And uh, we're, we're hopefully we'll have it restored probably in another month or two. And our aim is for the six of us to sail it down to Tasmania for the International Timber Boat Show wow. in 2025. Oh. Uh, so that's next year. Next, uh, that's when February or January or February. February next year, seventh through ninth. Oh. And, uh, we've 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 totally rebuilt the boat. It was a, basically the hull was the only thing that was stable. Everything else has been redone, and it's just been a work of love by all the fellows from here in Kiama. And it's uh, a work of art, Johnny. Too, by the sound of things. Yeah, it's a forty-six foot timber boat, and it's mainly teak, and uh, because teak was the materials used by the coffin makers back in those days, and hence the, all the teak work in it. But uh, it is a magnificent old boat. It's sitting on a dry stand up at Albion Park, 11 kilometres north of, of Kiama at the moment. But mm. as I said, Bob and Dolly Dyer fished off it many times. And uh, it's, it's remarkable how things all tie together when you hear about the competition off Bermagui. And I just thought, well, maybe the people are interested in hearing what's happened to the boat that originally oh. fished off and where it is now. Gee, I'd love to be at the uh, Wooden Boat Festival. I, I, I was on the James Craig the other day, um, which used to be called the Clun McLeod uh, when it was first launched in Sunderland back in the 18, late 1800s. 
I love saying that, Colin McLeod. And uh, and uh, that's I think they're sailing down to, um, not that it's a wooden boat, but I think they're sailing down to Hobart next year. But there'll be lots. It's, it's fantastic down there. And wooden boats, there's something about a wooden boat, isn't there, Johnny? Uh, look, it's a wooden boat talks to you. It, it really does. <laughs> While we've been working on this boat, we've had to take out rot on the decks and, and uh, like the engines were all seized and whatever. But it, it talks to you. You know you're doing the right thing when you see the pieces come together after they've been made. You know, we've got a cabinet maker, we've got a builder, we've got an electrician, we've got a spray painter, we've got a fitter and turner and what we call two general hands that have done all of the sanding by hand to get the teak back to what it looked like some 50 Bl- years ago. Blokes who can actually do stuff, yeah. Uh, I like those sort of blokes. Um, and girls too who can do stuff, uh, like my mum. Um, did you have any trouble getting teak? Did you have to find some teak to replace bits well, and pieces? And we did, and there's one company in Sydney is the sole supplier of Burmese teak, and it has to be Burmese teak because it's hard and, and uh, it machines well. But uh, Burmese teak is almost impossible to get because of the Yunta in Cambodia, and that's where the teak comes from. It's very expensive, and um, but we've been able to source what we've need to source. We've been able to get it uh, machined to the to the different shapes and sizes we needed. So, yeah, it's 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 been a journey, that's for sure. Oh, Johnny, and when you mentioned Jack Patton, the coffin maker, there'd be a there'd be a story, there'd be a story. Do they still make them? I mean, I'm. Sure, they still make them. They're probably made of fiberglass or something now, are they? Coffins? I think they're made of that uh, manufactured timber. But the interesting thing with Jack Patton, the boat was actually built at Lidcombe in, in, in Sydney, and they launched the boat into Duck Creek at, uh, at Parramatta, or at Lidcombe, I should say. And I met a fellow that pulled up off the highway and he saw the boat and, and said to his wife, I'm sure that's the old Signa. And he recounted the story to me how his father was at the launching and had to take the fly bridge off the boat to get it under the Duck Creek Bridge. Just incredible history for a, for a timber boat. I'll say, I'll say. Uh, with a bit of luck, John, um, who knows, but it would be nice to see you at, uh, at Hobart next, uh, next January, February. Sorry, next We'll February. be there for sure, Macca, and we're all looking forward. For us, it's been a, already the best part of 18 months. We, we sat down to a barbecue. We have a barbecue every Wednesday. We sat down to a barbecue in November last year and we worked out the combined, we'd spent 7,500 hours restoring the boat to that period in time. And there's been another four months since then, but it's really been a labour of love for everyone and uh, wouldn't have been able to be done without the volunteers, you know, no. so it's, uh, it's been great, mate. Nothing, nothing happens without them. Good on you, John. Great to talk to Good. you, mate. Really great. No worries. You have a lovely day. See you, mate. Bye. Take care. Bye. Bye. Morning, Mac. How are you? Good, thank you. Yeah, it's Dave from Harvey here. Just let you know. Well, you, you go, what a great show. Also, um, I'm driving from Harvey up to a community just north of Mekathara, Yulgar, Gina, to uh, do a bit of uh, four-wheel drive training and basic chainsaw for how, our mate's, work, mates program with this over here. How do, how, do you, how do you spell that, uh, Dave? Uh, Y-U-L-G-A. J uh, G uh, sorry J I double N A Yulga Gina. There you go, Yulga Gina. There you go. So David, and where are you now? You're on the you're on the 
road, of course. I can... Yeah, in Harvey. Harvey. Southwest. So I'll be there in about 11 hours. Yeah, that's what I thought. You've got, got a way to go yet. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was just thinking of when I was... Um, I forget where I was. Where was I, Kel? I was going up to the Pitlands, I think, in South Australia. And I was driving on a on a twisty dirt road, a lot of bulldust. And I came around a bend and there was a big sign written on um, corrugated iron that says, lift em foot. Uh, <laughs> meaning, uh, m- meaning, slow down, mate. <laughs> yeah, I, me and my mates did the cutting stock route last year. And we're listening to you on there. And I wish people would see that. Uh, along the stock route because a lot of them were going too fast with too high tyre pressures and we're chewing up the tunes. Yeah, exactly. And I, I don't know, I think it's sort of a rite of passage for for some with four-wheel drives. You get out there and see how fast you can go. We were doing this, it's, you know, and it'll come to grief. It always comes to grief and it doesn't matter how good a driver you are or whatever um, or how good your gear is. You know, you'll come across something in bulldust and there'll be a hole and next minute, yes. You're, you're absolutely right. Um, I've watched a few of these YouTube um, YouTubers on four-wheel drive, as I'm a four-wheel drive trainer, and, yeah, they're just... What they don't tell the listeners or the watchers of it is how many CVs and all they go through just for a bit of um, content as far as people sending it through the... The dirt. At the end of the day, it's all about tyre pressures. If you've got the tyre pressures right, you slow right down. Mm. I didn't actually have to take a second go on any of the dunes, and most of them I went up in second low. You know. Yeah, but, and you said uh, you do chainsaw uh, education too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's, it's for um, a local parks and wildlife service over here. We've got what's called the Mates Program, which is a mentored Aboriginal training education scheme. So we. Um, with joint management over here, we actually um, train local Indigenous people on country um, through their certificate, two, three and four. Yeah, well, there you go. Um, and they can be dangerous things too, can't they, chainsaws? You've got to know how to use them. Yep. Uh, yeah, they certainly are. It's not only just cuts as well. It's um, They do a lot of hearing damage as well. So, you know. For all the uh, listeners who've got you know, grandparents and that with the hearing aids, most of that's because of industrial deafness, which is with chainsaws, well, you know, with power tools. Power tools and so, all that sort of stuff, yeah. Yeah, so thank Christ, uh, none of the courses I've been on, we've actually got any claret, so I don't really want to start now with it. That's all good. No, and you're on, you're on the main highway there, Dave? Yeah, I'm on Forest Highway at the moment, just outside of Harvey. There you go. So 11 hours later, you'll be up there. So you're up there later tonight, maybe, with a bit of luck? Oh, I should get there hopefully around about five-ish, hmm. four, five o'clock. Yeah, we'll take Ready it. Ready to have a cold beer. <laughs> um, and where's home for you, David? I, I live in Harvey. You live in Harvey. So you're just about you're yeah. just starting off, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, nice to talk to you, David. Good on you. And yeah, have a great show, mate. Have a great one. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> I'll tell you why I live where I live. Good morning. It's just about the most important thing, especially in the times we live in, where we live and what we do. And I'd love to hear from you. You can write to us anytime and tell us about why you live where you live, how you chose it, what your aspirations are. Did you presume improvement? As one of my correspondents said one time, it's all interesting.
right to why I live where I live. These from a little while ago, once again, which I failed to read. Why I choose where I live. This is from Flo. She says, I didn't choose where I live, but when I went to see a display of satellite photos of Oakley, that's Oakley, I thought, that's my house, the one with all the sand dunes in the backyard, created by the dog, surrounded by my jungle, which reminds me of Queensland, but, oh, they forgot the aroma of the Indian curry that permeates our yard, or the Greek music, which invades our house even when the windows are shut. At least you know they're enjoying themselves, or being given traditional Romanian food from women who have suffered persecution. I know now why they come here, for the Aussie Tucker or hearing tales from a reminiscent steam train driver, or trying to imagine what it was like to race camels in Sudan from a native of Ethiopia. And when it comes to the international cricket season, it's hard to know which country to barrack for. I have to live in the street as the building next door is in the shape of a cross. You may realise why I happen to come to this place. Not mine, but a certain bishop's choice, who wishes to remain anonymous. I've come to appreciate how blessed we are to live in a country which allows people to be themselves, even though one may have to give in a little. Just a short note, says Flo, I'm a clergyman's wife, there's hence the cross, with three children, and we have now lived here in Oakley for 10 years, before that in Valley and then in New South Wales and in Bundaberg, Queensland. I enjoy the life as I've met people from all walks of life, from nearly all the countries of the world. I have to use an atlas to find out where. But each person is special if you take the time to listen. By the way, I did consult my neighbours and read the article out to them before I sent it to you, and they all laughed just as well. So here it is. Hope you enjoy it too. Keep up the good work of spreading a little joy, a little knowledge, and most of all, just by being yourself. Thank you, Flo. That's lovely. Why I Live Where I Live? This is written on behalf of A Plover. I live where I live because my family have been established here for generations and it would take a major disaster to remove us from this glorious place. We're surrounded by lakes full of bird life, black ducks, spoonbills, herons, swamp hens and jacanas. They're lotus birds, jacanas, lovely bird, Australian bird. In the banks of the lakes, the little spotted pardalotes nest busily, their cheerful chip-chip calls floating across the reeds amongst the gently rippling water. Around our home, eucalyptus and acacias rustle in harmony, smothering the nearby traffic noises and allowing the spirit to blossom and flourish, or they beat about us in ferocious intensity during a sudden storm. Our children have all been reared in security and peace, close to educational facilities, yet in rare isolation from the pressures of city life. We are, indeed, blessed to live where we live. Do you understand? A plover. University of Queensland, A Plover, University of Queensland, St Lucia. That's beautifully written by a long-time correspondent, a wonderful woman, Judy Cox. And finally, this is a little card sent. Dear Ian, may I introduce myself to you? I'm Jessica. You can call me Jessie. My friends do. I live where I live because I had some say in this important decision in life. I walked into this deserted farm and set up home. Some may call me a squatter. Life hasn't always been kind to me. I started out living in the same building as the header and tractor were stored in the farm. I've had a bad experience with a gun and I know to keep out of sight when the rifle comes out. I haven't always had a plentiful food supply and in fact was close to death. Every rib showed through my skin and my backbone was just a series of bumps down my back as I had a grass seed in my eye. If I'd lived close to a large town, the Salvation Army would have come to my rescue, but somehow I managed to survive. Conditions have improved for me and I now live in a home full of love 
and with all mod cons. An open fireplace, electric blankets and a wide variety of food on the menu. The home is only two and a half miles from my original known dwelling in this region. Occasionally I like to experience life on my own. Talking to the sheep as each day passes, I have trouble walking back home. My body and mind only go in one direction, west. Invariably, my sister comes to collect me and takes me home to my loving family. I have a son, Kenny. One's enough too, Ian. Definitely no more, and luckily he hasn't inherited this walkabout tendency. You and your listeners may wonder my age. Well, I'm two years and eight months as far as the family know, but they know I'm older. But Ian, you know a lady never divulges her age. Thanks for the pleasure of your company on Sundays. Yours in feline friendship, Jessie the... Just the white cat. <laughs> but seriously, folks, if you'd like to write to Why I Live Where I Live, Post Office Box 994, Sydney 2001, you can email or whatever. And that's Why I Live Where I Live for this week. Uh, g'day, Maka. It's Deborah Novak from Yamba up in the Clarence Valley. Hi, Deb. Hi, how are you? Good. Fantastic. I'm just ringing to let you know that we had the uh, Aussie Hayrunners uh, with 56 of their trucks come to the Clarence Valley on Australia Day and they were carrying over 2,000 bales of hay to distribute to our farmers up here in the Clarence, mighty Clarence Valley. Yeah, I had a bloke ring earlier this morning. Um, his name was Tim. Uh, I was going to get back to him, but I don't need to now. He was going to tell us about that. He must have seen them down uh, down a, a long way south of you but um yes. the hay runners yes. was the hay runners yeah yeah it was the aussie hay runners from uh victoria so the victorian farmers have uh, supported our uh farmers up here in the clarence valley uh ably coordinated by uh linda and Anne marie from the aussie hay runners who've done an amazing job and uh, we uh hosted them in Olmara, which i know you've been and you talked mm. about the other day and it was been great and our farmers have been absolutely over the moon to receive this hay, uh, donated hay, along with uh, those folk who turned out to help um, move that hay from those trucks to the uh, to the farmers' vehicles. So it's been great. It was a, it's obviously it was a big convoy, Deborah. Oh, massive convoy. And uh, it was quite interesting because one of the trucks in that convoy was an 80-year-old driver who had no <laughs> air conditioning and windows down the whole way. And he still loved it. He's been driving all his life. And then you compare that to another driver who uh, had a cappuccino machine and a TV in his truck. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, the the, comfort. <laughs> but the 80-year-old bloke had probably had um, quarter vents in his truck too, which is... Uh, <laughs> Which they don't have now. Nobody's got bloody yeah. court events. Yeah, but no, it, look, it was amazing. <laughs> and uh, look, absolute characters in that um, with the drivers and, and just great personalities in there. And you now we put an order in for 80 bacon and egg rolls to one of the um, uh, service stations. And, you know, that's an order you don't get every day. And, yeah, so it was really great to see uh, a lot of our farming community get out there and actually help uh, you know, unload all of this um, hay as well. So, you know, it's just really amazing to see this. Um, and this is Aussie spirit, you know. Exactly. Um, getting and helping each other and, you know, no fanfare, no nothing. So that's my job to give the fanfare. So, yeah, good uh, on yeah. you. Good on you, Deborah. Yeah. And and it's nice to see everybody, you know, state to state, interstate, tell, helping oh. one another, Victoria to north. And the Victorians, they always, you know, the, they do so much to send uh, hay around the place um, and yet they get smashed too from time to time. So it, it, 
What goes yeah, around comes around, which is good. It does, it does. It does. And uh, always great to hear your dulcet tones on a Sunday morning. I go every Sunday, I go, oh, my God, where is that week gone <laughs> when I hear your voice? That's what, I, that's, that's what I think. And when I finish, I think it all starts again. What are we going to do next week? You never know where. You never know where it goes, Deb. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's a great so when you see a when you see a convoy of trucks. I remember seeing one from in Cobar that had come across all the way from Western Australia, long trip, and and you just see truck after truck and loaded with Western Australian hay. It was just fantastic. It really is. Uh, it's quite you know interesting how people have uh, received the trucks as well in terms of how excited they get because it feels it gives you goosebumps just to see that because you know people are working together for a common cause yeah. and I think it's that too seeing people working together and it really just gives that you know really good feeling knowing people are helping each other and we need more of it when you see how divided we are. My my sister ta- <laughs> talked about the other day. She said to me. What we have in Australia is autoimmune disease, meaning uh, that's when your immune system attacks healthy cells in your own body, and that's what uh, seems to be happening. That's what seems uh, look, we've got what an a auto. Great way yeah, to it. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is, and that's uh, exactly. my sister's a bright girl. She got the brains, and I don't know what I got, but she got the. You got the beauty idea. <laughs> no, I didn't get that either. <laughs> Good on you, Deb. Uh, thank you, Maka. See you, mate. Bye. Yeah, good day, Maker. Peter Peter Joseph calling. How are you, Pete? What are you doing? Where are you? Um, uh, down at the bottom of the world with a, an old Queensland mate of mine, Don McDonald. I've got him on the line here. Yeah. He's, uh, where's the he's, bo- uh, Where's the bottom of the world? The bottom of the world, would you believe, is the bottom of Argentina, a oh, right. place called Ushiwa. Uh-huh. And we're uh, going off to Antarctica tomorrow. What, in a boat or flying or what? No, no, no. You've got to do it the, uh, the, the real way. We're going in a boat across the Drake Passage, which uh, can be <laughs> it can be a lake or a bloody... Uh, uh, a really heavy ride, but... Um, once you get across it, you're down onto the Antarctic Peninsula, about 200 of us, the scientists. Wow. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and uh, we've got a bit of a fundraiser for Black Dog, uh, as you'd ex- expect from, <laughs> from, uh, from us. But um, John Eel was coming down as a sports ambassador for Black right. Dog, and uh, it's, it's really exciting. Well, so, yeah. So, how long will you spend on Antarctica? You drive around. I mean, the, with the little snow vehicles or weeks. something, or no, no. It's very, uh, as you can imagine, the whole environmental uh, scene is incredibly uh, sensitive, and um, everyone's very respectful, and uh, uh, clearly want to do the right thing, and. Uh, you can only we'll go across sort of the shore and uh, zodiacs, and they lend you something called muck boots uh-huh. uh, to walk around in pretty heavy gear. <laughs> and uh, and uh, Don and I are also going to get to uh, uh, sleep on the ice, uh, which uh, we're told will be 
an experience uh, not to be uh, <laughs> not to be ignored. Oh, not, that's right, and maybe not to be repeated. Um, tell <laughs> tell me this. Um, so you're there for what a, a, a little while and a couple of weeks. A couple of weeks in and that'll be it's fantastic. So an Argentine is like a stepping off point, is it for um and trips to Antarctica? Yeah, that's it. it, it it's sort of the place, and um, we're going down. To, I mean, there's a big science museum down here in Shiawa, beautiful town. I'll send you a I'll send you a couple of pictures. <clears throat> beautiful village and and a lot of research. Uh, activity goes from here, including uh, quite a few Australians. There's a scientist coming down from the CSIRO with us, a couple of other scientists, climatologists, glaciologists, and Don and I. And uh, we've got a lot to learn. <laughs> well, exactly. Um, yeah, I was. Just, I, I read an email this morning from somebody who said Argentina, or was it was it Argentina or Venezuela? I think it was Argentina. Uh, are they doing all right in Argentina? I mean, a lot of those South American American countries struggle, don't they, economically? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the answer to your question is uh, no, they're not doing all right, and um, and uh, there's been a lot of political mayhem going on here just in the last month. Yeah, and um, but the funny thing is, and we all notice this coming across and coming down. The people are fantastic, and uh, you'd, you'd think that, um, I don't know, <laughs> all will be well. Um, they've got a, a calmness about them. I don't know. It's, it's clearly a cultural thing, mm-hmm. um, and that there's a decency about them, and uh, they're not kind of, there's no kind of evident anger uh, around the place, and uh, only too happy to help them. They want, everyone wants to ensure that you enjoy their country. And we will. <laughs> <laughs> Peter, so, I, I, yeah, go on, sorry. Well, I was going to say, uh, uh, Don and I might book you and Lee in to come and you know, <laughs> test, uh, test, test out the theories. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be all right. Well, I, I think I wish I was with you. Uh, Lee certainly does. She's wanting to get out of the place. But I'm not, I'm not sure I'm I'm a great traveller to Antarctica. Or certainly across the, what's it called, the, the ditch? Or what, what what's it called, the little passage you go across? The, the Drake Passage. The Drake Passage, yeah. The Drake Passage is, 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 is uh, famous for, <laughs> for good reasons and yeah. bad reasons. <laughs> so, sounds like Cape Horn. And you don't know what you're going to get. Yeah, huh? it sounds like Cape Horn. <laughs> Could... Yeah, well, that's it. Cape yeah. Horn, we're looking at that from where we're sitting at the moment. <laughs> exactly, exactly. All right, Pete. Uh, well, good luck and good on you. give us another, yeah, give us a report maybe in another week's time and see what's happening, okay? Good on you, mate. Thanks, thanks, mate. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.